Welcome, guys, to a brand new episode of the Poker Player Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Frohly, and today I'm joined by high stakes no limit player Kevin Rabichow, who has been playing poker for 12 years professionally and a few years before that studied the game as well. Um, he's been also featured on the challenge between um, the legends and heads up no limit, and he took down a title against a tough field. And um, yeah, now he's here to comment also on the Duck Pork versus Dignity Grano challenge today and talk a little bit about his approach when it comes to poker, ambassadorship, uh, because he's also an ambassador for running once poker and his life next to the game. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin Rabichow. How are you doing? Thanks, Andreas. Good. Uh, feeling good. How are you? Doing, doing great this afternoon. I just came back from the gym and now ready to go with the podcast. Um, yeah, the first question I always ask people is like how, if, if you look back on your career. Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, it's it's always so kind of in flux, like the, uh, say like someone's status, for example, in, in poker, in high stakes or whatever. Like I, I've been dabbling or I, I dabbled in high stakes poker as early as like 2011, which was maybe a little bit reckless at the time. Um, and, and didn't really feel like I was kind of well-established in higher games until maybe 2013 or 2014, somewhere around there. Um, but throughout all that, I think uh, I'd say the biggest thing is that I was able to sort of like surround myself with really competitive, like really uh, intelligent people who were, who were kind of working on the same things as me. Um, and, and that's, I think, part of why I'm like such a big believer in coaching and, and sort of like training community, because I don't... I don't really feel like there's a whole lot of credit that I can uh, contribute just like specifically to myself. I, I just think about like, okay, during, during these years, I was, I was in a network with, with these people and they're successful. And then like, you know, fast forward a few years later, I was in a network with some different people and they, they, they were successful uh, and so on and so forth to today where like, you know, I'm part of a network of, of tournament players who are successful. And that's like a game that I only just started a couple of years ago. Um, I, I think that's that's kind of been the key thing that I usually like to talk about is is just you know collaborating and um, exchanging ideas, exchanging information. That's that's been uh, the most important thing for me, uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. So if you look back, you said it was quite a risk to just play high stakes in 2011, but okay. maybe that risk that you took also got you just early access to that sort of community, right? That you yeah. could collaborate with other people that were playing the same stakes. Whereas if you had been more conservative with your approach, yeah. certain connections wouldn't have been made. So would you still say that today that is a smart play? Because back then I think, I mean, high stakes obviously was competitive, but I think today it's, like if you play 2550 and you're not like really or 1020 even online and you're not ready to play those players um wouldn't you say that i mean do you think it's different today or would you still say that it's worth the risk yeah it, you know i've i've heard a lot of um heard a lot of people in in poker media recently talking about you know like bankroll um uh, bankroll strategies or like bankroll advice because i came up in a time i think similar to a lot of poker players where like you know, there were very strictly defined ideas or rules for bankroll management to say like, oh, you know, if you're playing cash games, like you, you're really taking a shot if you don't have 20 or 30 buy-ins in your bankroll. And, and if you want to play long-term, you need at least a hundred buy-ins in your bankroll or something like this. Uh, and that, and that made sense, I think for that time. 
Um, but I, I think that perhaps, you know, what you're saying uh, is true because at the time that I was first, you know, trying to, to move up perhaps too quickly, but quickly, um, I was very young and I had the ability to kind of like bounce back from that if it didn't go well. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about when I was 20, 21 years old and I was still in university. So like, I, I wasn't even necessarily committed to like full-time poker. Mm -hmm. So if I wasn't, if I didn't, if I didn't try playing high stakes then, then maybe I, it doesn't stick, right? Like maybe I just kind of fizzle out and, and go get a good job and, and just play poker as a hobby, um, which of course is fine <laughs> as well. But, you know, to be, to be a full fledged professional, especially like a high stakes professional, I think, um, yeah, there, there's very often maybe three or four attempts to to get to that point before you actually secure that that position uh and that that was my experience for sure yeah that you after taking some attempt that you get knocked down a limit or two and then you have to recoup and then try again um <laughs> yeah in, in my case more than a limit or two i was i think okay. i was playing 10 20 in 2011 and i was playing 25 cent 50 cent in 2012 so <laughs> more wow. than uh, black black friday and and uh with, shot take gone poorly kind of mm -hmm. overlapped in the wrong way so sure. uh, with a lot, yeah. lot of money being locked up um that you have to just <laughs> go and, and but you know that that's the thing about poker i think that as long as you have what you have learned, as long as you have your brain, what you have been working on, um, you can basically lose all your money, right? Or like a, l a large chunk of it, but then you can make it back. Um, maybe today that's not as easy. Uh, it's definitely not as easy as it used to be, but I think there's always some place uh, in online poker and in live poker specifically um, to, I think, recoup when something like a, a large downswing happens and you took uh, a little bit too much risk. Yeah. Yeah. What I also wanted to get into briefly is um, before we go to like the heads up challenges, you've been playing some heads up and also some six max and some tournaments. What would you say? Uh, how does six max compare to heads up no limit? And if somebody is great at six max, would you say that he could still be pretty bad at heads up? Yeah, it's a good question. Um... I think there's a number of, of players who overlap sort of in the same way that I do today, except a lot of them have played majority six max and they play a little bit of heads up and I've played a lot of heads up and a little bit of six max. Mm -hmm. um, I think we just struggle with the opposite things. Like honestly, there's there's still parts of six max that I, I don't feel super sharp at, um, especially the sort of like the tight range situations that that don't maybe present themselves as tight range situations. So like a, like a single raise pot between two narrow ranges um, or a three bet pot between what I feel like should be two wide ranges, but they're actually quite quite tight. Um, and then six max players struggle with like the exact opposite thing where, you know, we're basically only playing button versus big blind, except the button is a crazy person and and you're, you're playing twice as many hands um, mm -hmm. as you would in a six max environment. So, uh, you know, the I think the very good six max players have devoted a lot of time to button versus big blind um, because they, they sort of recognize like, oh, this is the most common spot we're gonna play. In, in a six max game, we should be really proficient at it, um, which is, I think, a great mindset to have when it comes to learning the game is like, okay, what, what are the pots that you play most frequently, even if they're not like big and glamorous, just, you know, if, you, if you're in this spot 20 times an hour, you need to be really, really good at it. So the, the best six max players today, I think are very good at heads up because they spent so much time in the last few years 
with solvers working on button versus big blind. Uh, and there is a lot of overlap there. There's a lot of similarities. Um, you know, you could get really technical and talk about like proficiency with uh, the additional hands that you're playing from the button, but the, the big blind play is quite similar. So um, yeah, you know, I, I guess, like I said, I, I struggled um, to, to adapt to the tighter range situations. Uh, but the benefit, I guess, coming from my side is that those are the less common spots. So the less common spots are the spots that I'm maybe still working my way through getting getting excellent at. Um, and if a six max player comes to heads up, they're playing every single pot, they're playing, they're uncomfortable, uh, at least from my point of view. So I think that's an edge in, in my direction. Makes a lot of sense, yeah, that you just look at all the situations that come at them, come up in no limit in general, whether it's six max or heads up, and then there's like one uh, side of the spectrum, the extreme on the looseness side, which is your uh, home basically with heads up. And then there's the very tight situation, which, yeah, in six max, I guess if, you know, we're talking, I don't know, some 18, 20% frequencies from the first seat, then that's not going to be a very uh, common hand to play anyway, versus like all sorts of position, maybe versus the big blind, you kind of have to, um, or versus a button cold call, but more so versus the big blind, you have to study that a bit more. And I, I think there's, yeah, there's probably some something similar happening in PLO as well, uh, where I, I don't feel as comfortable playing heads up PLO because I've been playing mainly six max. And then, yeah, asking myself what I what I would have to do in order to understand the difference um, between your strength buckets and, and what qualifies as showdown value um, and what does not. Um, and yeah. yeah. But that I think that's pretty interesting to to go. And then you also have uh, played uh, some tournaments. So you said in the recent few years, that's actually something that you have been doing, not before that, and that you uh, value the exchange that you have with other uh, high six players who play tournaments as well. So how has your experience been with tournaments? And why did you start doing that when you had some profitable revenue from cash? Yeah, um, I guess there's there's a few things here, like... Um, first of all, like, I, I think tournaments are, are incredibly interesting, uh, strategically. I think, um, for a long time, I was kind of like, you know, fixated on the cash game environment. And I just felt like the cash game environment was like the, you know, the most difficult form of poker, the highest level form of poker. I thought that it was where all the best players went. And that was kind of like where I wanted to put my energy. Mm -hmm. And over time, we certainly saw that the that the cash game, um, the highest stakes cash game, online and and also live, uh, did attract sort of like the you know what you would call like the top tier technical talent, I, I suppose. Um, but there there was just this kind of like you get this feeling that like in in tournaments, everyone's just kind of like trying to be a magician or like trying to be a bit of you know like more literally a wizard, like not not a cash game wizard, like an expert with. Uh, with data and pio solver and stuff, but like just sort of a field player, um, and I and I never really had a grasp on like why that was. I you know I just kind of followed the common uh, logic from probably ten years ago, which is just like tournament players are bad and cash game players are good, um, and that's just not true. Uh, it, it might be true to some extent because there's a lot of variance in the game, so like bad players can survive longer. Uh, but that's just like good for a healthy poker ecosystem is is kind of what we're learning right with the with the move towards PLO and and jackpot sit and goes and and tournaments. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, in recent years, I guess I'm just kind of like seeing the light a little bit. I I dove into strategy 
because I saw an opportunity to play some live tournaments that I thought were really high value. And I had the time to devote to taking it seriously. There, there was some good, some, some really good training material, like better than I had seen um, in previous years started to come out, I would say about two to three years ago, some really good courses, uh, some really good training videos on run at once as well. Um, so I, I started watching content that I felt like was made for the, that like high level audience that appeals to me. And all of a sudden, strategically, I'm finding like uh, that I was way out of my depth in tournaments and, and there was just like, so, so, so much to learn. And I didn't know any of it. Um, so yeah, like I, I started playing a few live tournaments. Um, I say two years ago is when I started taking it seriously, just because like, like I've played plenty of tournaments before two years ago, but, um, never, never as my full-time commitment and never with like the amount of study that I'm doing now. And I think that, you know, a little bit of early success probably helped to rope me in. I, ha I had a big score about six months in at a live tournament in Montreal. And, and from there I was pretty comfortable devoting time and, and finances <laughs> towards, uh, being as good as at tournaments as I can be. Cause I, th I think the end uh goal here for me is just like you know i th i think that tournaments especially live tournaments are part of like maybe the healthiest poker ecosystem that we see right now and if i'm trying to be in this industry in five years or 10 years or 15 years i think i have to be good at that game so, um, yeah very very good point that i couldn't agree more with i think as a poker player you have to all not only think about what you're doing now but also where if you want to be in the industry in the in the near future five even 10 years um you know i some poker players they don't have other ideas of what they want to do in the future and they actually want to stay for the long run and then looking at what ecosystem is actually healthy and for example like online cash uh, doesn't look at least too healthy to me at least there's some indications that uh online PLO cash and, and no limit are not going to be the same for the next five, 10 years, I think. So in that regard, I, I think there is going to be a point where I will invest more into my tournament game again. Um, now still sticking for the PLO, but I think tournaments are going to be very healthy, especially live tournaments. And those are going to be played for a decent amount of stakes uh, or decent high stakes. So um, if you have the bankroll, then making the transition to that, um, I think the bank was actually one of the most important things uh, next to obviously your skill, but a huge barrier. Yeah, a huge, huge barrier. And and staking is so important and, and risk management is so important in mm -hmm. tournaments. I think that's actually a, a pretty that was a that was a skill that I developed early that I maybe like used to my disadvantage in cash games to some extent, because cash games like in the grand scheme of things are, are not actually that risky. Um, but now that I'm in the tournament world, it, it's, it's been super, super helpful to, to have a good handle on risk management. Uh, it's, it's wild. Um, <laughs> man, managing your finances is like, it, it's more than half the battle for sure. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm glad that I have some good idea. I think generally speaking, but I, I still think even though I was raised to have a be maybe a little bit risk averse, and I think that's good for you in poker because if you're i mean at least for your buy-ins that you you know what yeah. um, maybe maybe sometimes you have to take a little bit more risk but at the same time if you look at let's say a 10k plo tournament or the 10k main event those 
I mean, if, if you're like, not, maybe not the main event, but maybe there's like 500K up top or even a million up top, those payouts uh, structures, they're going to be absolutely insane when it comes to your risk and where your EV actually comes from over the next 5, 10, 15 years. Uh, it's, it seems pretty absurd to me. And one could hope that there's always going to be some mix of cash games that you can still play in, in live poker as well so that you don't have to rely on the EV that you that you get but not realize <laughs> when you're playing live tournaments. Yeah, I, yeah I, found this, I found this at a few of the live uh, events that I went to in 2020, especially like early 2020 in particular. Um, I was focusing more on like the American stops where I could sort of like, I could park myself for two or three weeks and there were cash games running around the clock and there were side events, you know, tournaments running. And like, it, it's just, um, yeah, it's, it's a very common, I think, uh, flaw for, for some people who aren't taking the, the live tournament game, like super, super seriously. And they're just kind of there to try and hit a score. You spend like $2,000 to get to this place and to stay at your hotel. And then you play a 5k or a 10k main event and you're there for like a week and you bust on day two, like, you, you know, you've committed so much time and money to this, to this trip. And maybe you have, you know, pe people think they have big ROIs in these fields. I'm sure some of them do. Um, but even if you're making like 50 or 100% ROI, you, you might just break even if you don't do anything else on that trip, uh, just because of how expensive it is and how much time you're spending. Oh, I'm a big um, advocate of watching your expenses. Um, people have given me shit for that in the past all the time. But I think that um, making some decent calculations and yeah, how much you're spending on the trip, on hotel and flights, etc., and yeah. estimating your ROI, especially if you're selling, especially if you're high, in a high tax country, yeah. uh, I think a lot of people are delusional when it comes to the tournament scene. They just think you know their ROI is like through the roof, or they've never done the math, and then right. all of a sudden they are actually breaking even, as you say, on a lot of the 10k, 5k um, tournaments that they are playing, just because they don't play enough volume to counterfeit their expenses. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, it's pretty huge. Now, when we look at, let's, let's actually um, go a little bit into the heads up challenge that you played first, um, sure. which was the, um, uh, now I've heard quite a word, uh, the legends, legends showdown between yeah. um, quite a tough field and you, and, um, I think there was like some pre-rounds and then eventually you uh, played against the ones that did best in the in the yeah in the first few matches and you ended up taking it down how was that experience for you on um, playing that field and oh, sorry i froze for a second there yeah how, how was the experience in the legends showdown um playing first the, the pre-rounds and then ending and um, playing against the ones that did better and how do you say that the variance do you think that any of the six could have won with more than a 10% chance? Uh, more than 10%, uh, almost certainly, yeah. I I found, you know, I mean, we were playing 750 hand matches. Mm -hmm. um, I, I ran some numbers on this before the, before the tournament, but I can't remember exactly what the odds were, but like, um, you know, poker shares had pricing uh, available for betting on the match that I thought was pretty accurate. And I, I don't think that anyone had a huge advantage at any particular stage, uh, except for maybe some like particular head to head matchups, but it, it's going to be hard over 750 hands. And we're seeing this in like the, you know, Doug versus Daniel match now as well, which is getting some betting volume, just like, like it's not that many hands, you know, even if, even if you're, 
substantially better than your opponent, which I might call, you know, 15 big blinds uh, per hundred is like a, a very, very big reg versus reg uh, theoretical edge. Uh, even with that over 750 hands, you might win, I don't know, like 60 to 65% of the time, you know, it's, it's nowhere near a lock. So, you know, you, you kind of just had the format was, you know, you had to win your, um, your round Robin, which was just three matches. So, you know, come, come out, you know, two and one in a, in a few 60 forties and you're in the semis. And then you just, uh, I think we played a few extra hands. So 1500 in the semis, 2250 in the finals. Yeah, no, that. Yeah, sorry about that. I'll <laughs> try and avoid uh, letting that play through. Um, so you know, the semis and the finals, they were they were tougher. Uh, I was playing Asian Flushy uh, Bjorn Lee in the semis. Very good player. Hasn't played online in a while, but but still really sharp and and plays in a really competitive uh, environment in Macau. Mm -hmm. And then I played Pauly Felizmi's in the in the final, who I who I thought going in was going to be the toughest uh, heads up player, and and we had a super tight match. Uh, again, you know, twenty two hundred and fifty hands, but not enough to really parse out like a thin edge. I think if either of us had an edge, it was small, three mm -hmm. three to five big blinds in either direction. I'm not really sure. Um, so of course, uh, yeah, there's a ton of luck involved. I, I was really fortunate. Yeah. Just uh, for you guys, uh, there's some construction works going on. Um, I'm not sure if I can actually maybe talk a little about, about um, the the challenge. Like I've only seen some of the matches, and uh, to me, it also was. I mean, there was a lot of short variance. Even if you look at who's taking down the pre rounds and then afterwards in the last rounds, you see that it's like flipped entirely, and somebody who lost a lot before won a lot back afterwards. And I think it was a good indication uh, to see, or it was a good, some good numbers that you could see then taking over for the Dark Polk versus the Inigrano heads up challenge, because yeah, it made you more realistic about what to expect, even if, for example, Dark has a 15 BB per 100 win rate for the match. Um, and uh, previous, uh, previous to the first day, the odds, I think, on poker shares was like 1.18 to 5.3 odds. And uh, I got like two bets in with uh, two other streamers um, before the match that it was, uh, I think like one in 4.3, which I was pretty happy to bet with um, uh, on Duck Polk before the match, just because of what I expected from the win rates. Um, what were your yeah. thoughts before the match or before the day one started? Yeah, so I, I looked at those numbers pretty closely. My original impression was that um, was that Doug's long-term edge was going to be quite high, and and I thought that I, I thought that 15 BBs per hundred was not you know outside of the realm of possibility. But I I knew so little about Daniel's uh, preparation and and his uh, and where he was going to come out. I knew a little bit about Doug because we played a couple matches on ACR mm -hmm. uh, and we spoke a little bit privately before the match started. So I had a good sense that like, sorry, I, I had a good sense that like, regardless of how much prep Daniel was able to do, I knew that Doug had done what I felt like was near the most you could do. Um, so I felt really good about Doug maintaining whatever edge he would have had, like if they just came in dry, if they came in with no preparation. Um, the question is how close can Daniel get to, you know, the best strategy that Doug can possibly play? Um, 
in a few months, which in my opinion is is not not that close. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, when it comes to Doug's plan, at least there's a lot of data that yeah, one could have used before going into the match. And that's like his overall approach to the game. Like he has a course about heads up no limit. And if you watch just a couple of those videos, then um, you're aware that he tries to dissect his opponent's strategy in, in terms of a game tree. And uh, I like that approach a lot and that he will discover weaknesses in some non-headsup specialist game very, very quickly. And that whatever was happening at the beginning that I think with every uh, couple of hundred hands passing, he would discover a couple of new uh, situations where he could take advantage of um, Daniel's strategy. And I also didn't know anything about uh, Daniel's strat uh, and who he was been working with. And then Bill Perkins tweeted even that, like, where, why would you ever wager a large bet not knowing half of the equation? And I think that, um, I mean, there there's still some indications that were there for Daniel. I mean, that he might be more prone. Uh, he's definitely more prone to tilt than duck in terms of online game. I mean, it's reasonable to assume that yeah. just because of what happened uh, on, on Twitch. I mean, maybe it was a little bit of showmanship. Right. You know, there was added drama to that. But I think Doc just doesn't give a fuck when he plays online poker. He just does whatever he wants to. And um, well, you know, I, I think that I think that tilt comes in a variety of forms. I think that mm -hmm. it can be, you know, Doug. Uh, admittedly left the poker world at, at a place where he just like wasn't really enjoying the game anymore. Yeah. Uh, he was feeling more stressed than usual when playing high stakes poker. And and those kind of things, you know, he took whatever, like probably three full years off without playing like at all. So th those kinds of things could easily come back. You, you never know sort of like what the start of the match is going to do to trigger someone's emotional state. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe Daniel, even, even if he's worse at tilting, maybe he's better at quitting. Right or or maybe maybe he vents more more openly and and more aggressively in a way that I wouldn't condone. But but maybe uh, but maybe he recovers faster. Right where where maybe these kind of things can can linger with a player like Doug. Um, so something you know I've struggled with from like a mental game point of view, which which I could easily see Doug falling into, um, is when you think that you're guaranteed to be better than someone mm -hmm. and they're beating you. That can be extremely frustrating, right? Yeah, and and that can affect your decision making process. Even if it's not outright tilt, it can it can kind of give you that brain fog feeling that doesn't make your your strategic decision making quite as sharp as it normally is. So I think mm -hmm. that could definitely go in both directions. But um, clearly, the the technical edge and the exploitative capabilities uh, are in favor of Doug, and mm -hmm. and I and I bet on him uh, at at a similar price to what you were talking about. I, I couldn't agree more with like the, the live setting. I think that um, I also observed like what the Duck Polk has been playing like when he was quitting the game. And I think that, yeah, some of these times he was just not there, right? He also dusted off like the main event, I think, um, because he just didn't want to be there anymore. Um, so if the whole match was played live, I would probably not have bet um, the same odds. I think I would have yeah. not made that bet just because I think there are variables that I have not too much idea of. And one of the things he mentioned that he might be prone to tilt, like if he's go, um, or just, you know, frustration that he's losing against Daniel. For example, like in the day one, if that happened like three days in a row, right. that could actually get to him in some way, um, at least also how he 
I mean, just just physically, like maybe he does give off uh, something or some frustration sooner or later or alter his play. But in online poker, I think that's a little bit different. Um, yeah. And also the pacing, I think, uh, is, is being able to play so many hands uh, in a short amount of time. Um, the decisions that are so short, uh, yeah, you have to make quick decisions, right? I think that's going to be heavily in Doc, uh, Doc's favor. And yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a really important factor. You, it's it's easy to forget that, you know, Doug has played millions of online hands, which which just kind of means that his instinct for the spot, like if, if he had to make a decision in, in a quarter of a second in any given spot, his, his decisions would be far, far more accurate than Daniel's, Where whereas Daniel maybe needs a full, you know, 30 or 60 seconds to to feel confident about a decision that, that gets him close to where he's trying to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I still remember, like I, I did this one experiment that it wasn't the best idea, maybe. Um, Phil was like posting on Twitter one time that he's playing 510 heads up uh, pillow, and so, or, or that he's on the table. And I was hoping actually the game would fill up, So, but I would play the first few hands against Phil. And I just realized how, like because I haven't studied heads up pillow much, I'm like, okay. Like I cannot make a good decision within 15, 30 seconds. I'm just not going to be able to. So I threw like one or two hands pretty badly, but then the game was filling up and then I was like more comfortable again with like a six max setting. But as well, it was like at the beginning of this year, I believe. But that that's exactly what I imagine how Daniel would feel like um, if he played Doug, uh, who was, you know, has so much experience. And even if he trains before that a little bit, I think that's still going to be a major factor decision making within a short amount of time frame i think that's yeah. pretty crucial this, this actually came, i mean it came up a little bit in the legends showdown for me to be honest um because i hadn't you know I, i've been talking about how i spent a lot of time on tournaments in the last two years i had to kind of refresh my knowledge of of heads up and get some practice matches in uh before the Legends showdown and i i found myself playing really really slow um, even slower than I normally would, which I, I already have a kind of a reputation for playing pretty slow. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I was I was in a situation where I was like, you know, out of out of time bank, probably four or five times per session. And uh, I think in the I think I came up in a, a couple times in the first match I, I played against uh, Bjorn was we we um, ran out of time bank so many times and had to reset our, our table so many times that I think 750 hands took over five hours, like maybe five and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, Felizmi's uh, uh, he plays uh, Mikhail Thuritz and they finish their match in like two hours, 40 minutes or like two hours, 45 minutes, <laughs> just blazing through the hands. And like, you know, it it definitely speaks to like the, the skill of, of, knowing your strategy and executing your strategy like confidently compared to sort of the the more methodical approach uh which i think is just like a lack of my recent playing experience where i'm like consciously trying to recall the correct decision in a bunch of spots uh that someone like Polly, who plays you know all the time just knows it's it's mm. just instinct right yeah um what do you think about the first day that we've seen the live match? Like, what you, you posted a few things on Twitter for the people who follow you. Um, you had a few thoughts when the hands happened, and you, you just posted what you thought of how both players yeah. were playing. Like, what was um, particularly interesting in the first match that played live? 
Yeah, so that that was a lot of fun for me. I I'm hopefully going to do more of that, um, but I don't know if they plan to play live again anytime soon. What what I was kind of looking for, I mean, there's two things I was looking for, and I guess it's it's different for each side of the of the match, right? So for Doug, I know that he's coming in with like a more um, accurate and an experienced version of heads up play, like a, a style of play that you know, I would expect um, if I was comparing his play to myself, for example, or, or to other kind of top online players, I would expect to see more similarities because um, he's been playing against, you know, all the kind of current top players for the last month or two, like pretty much day in and day out. Um, so for him, I was more looking for like, okay, what, like what are his deliberate adjustments going to be? Or maybe not even adjustments, but like, you know, is he doing anything here that that seems as if he's he's trying to pick up information? Um, for example, something that I often recommend in my training content is that if I'm playing, if it's like the beginning of a of a session uh, against unknown opponents, and I think two options are similar EV in theory, um, say for example, call and fold on the river, I would choose call a, a much higher percentage of the time because it because I get the EV of the information mm -hmm. of, of showdown, right? Um, additionally, if I think it's close between running a bluff and not running a bluff, uh, you know, you would probably want to run the bluff more often at the beginning to get the additional EV of information of, are they going to make a light call or, or am I going to get through a fold early on, right? Because um, kind of creating that information gap between you and your opponent is, is where edges are found in, in heads up or just in poker in general, uh, but it's much easier to do in heads up when there's only two of you. Um, so for Doug, I was looking for that. I, I was I was curious, like, you know, where is he Where is he making a non-standard call, a non-standard fold, um, a non-standard bluff or or non-bluff? And, and does this tell us anything about Daniel's game as a result? Um, mm -hmm. Then from Daniel's side, I'm basically just like, I haven't seen this guy play cards up, heads up, no limit ever, right? So... So from his side, I'm more looking at like, what, uh, how, how is he building his strategy, right? Is he trying to emulate a solver? Uh, does he have a, a game plan, sort of like a, you know, back of the hand game plan that's just following a set of rules? Um, is, is he acting on sort of like a more, um, uh, I'll call it like a personal level where it's like, okay, Doug's image is this, so I'm going to respond with that. Um, I wasn't really sure which which type of approach he's going to come out with, so just kind of closely looking at the way he plays hands to to um, to dive into what I thought his like method was going to be. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Like the the way I seen Daniel construct his strat was basically I think three betting what the charts would say more or less. Um, I think that yeah. he did on the flop. He would generally speaking choose a very, very small size, like a fifth of the pot in like most situations, just to get like some auto folds. And I mean, I don't think that was like quite very challenging for Duck to play against, um, but um, it was easy for Daniel to execute. Uh, and then I think the earliest where Daniel did something entirely different from, I think, what uh, would be advocated by a solver, I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but is that on the turn, he would be checking a lot more right. than he should be in theory and that would and also facing a bet he would check fold a lot with a higher frequency than he should be 
in like quite a few spots, I think. And then ending up with like a very strong check call range in that node for the going into the river. And then on the river, I wondered whether Duck would have too many bluffs against how strong Daniel's range check calls to turn with. Um, and I wondered whether you thought that specifically the Queen Jack hand where um, Duck actually has a good bluff, I think, um, is slightly over bluffing against how strong Daniel's range is. So yeah, that's amazing. Um, that that hand in particular, I I had my own kind of uh, concerns for the same reason. You know, it's it's hard to know. Um, well, I guess the first thing on my mind is, did Daniel come into this two hundred hand live match with the intention of playing one style the whole way and then adjusting based on the way the session went for future sessions, or did he have a plan? to actually change his his style of play within the within the one match. I think that's like an important question for Doug um, because he might have thought, you know, in, in retrospect, I think he just came in with a plan for 200 hands um, and he was going to adjust based on how that match went for future matches. Uh, I don't know if Doug was, was perceiving the situation that way. I don't know if Doug was perceiving it as like, okay, this guy's going to come in with a fixed strategy and he's just going to play it for 200 hands. Um, so that that part, you know, begs the question of how how good his decision to bluff Queen Jack was. Um, I think the hand, I guess, for anyone who didn't see it, was a three bet pot where Doug called in position with Queen Jack of Diamonds, uh, and then he called a very very small bet on King Six Six. Was it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, King Six Rainbow. Rainbow. Yeah. He calls in position. Both both plays very standard. Even even against you know even if we think Daniel's playing tight. He was pretty much automatic C betting uh, three bet pots. So it was a very mandatory call. Um, mm -hmm. He or, or raise either, either play would be fine. And um, and then when check two on the eight on the turn, and then like a deuce blank deuce on the river, he just you know he bets big on the turn and then he jams on the river uh, when check two. So yeah, I mean, what is Daniel check calling on the turn? You know, the reason I brought up the adjustment thing is like, does Doug think that his turn check call is going to be stubborn because of how much he's been getting run over during this match, right? So does he make a stubborn turn call here with pocket sevens, with ace-queen high, with, you know, a random 8-5 suited or something? I mean, probably. Like, you know, that would be a huge fold at this point in the hand. Um, any of those hands that I just yeah. named would be a huge fold at this point in the hand. Is but he into, yeah, like he, yeah. he made some similarly tight folds in similar spots, um, but I don't think either of them had seen, I don't think they were getting live whole card information. I, I think that was only privy to the audience. Mm -hmm. that, could, that could have not known it. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's the case. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think, yeah, that exactly those hands that you mentioned, sevens, nines. Yeah. I don't think Daniel was going to fold tens. It could have been, but I think sevens, nines, and like some. It, it would be a very strange fold at that point in the hand. Um, and and even though we did see Daniel make some tight folds, I, I even as an audience, as a viewer who saw the cards up folds he was making, I would be surprised if he folded any eight uh, pocket nines and tens for sure, and maybe even ace queen high. Although we did see a similar fold with ace queen high that I that I didn't like so much. Um, but yeah, it, it's just kind of early for him to be folding those hands. 
Well, and... he, fought, he fought the pocket eights one time also versus the turn bet. Uh, yeah. And that was a very strong pair of eights, I think. That versus was a, that was a weird one. I mean, I view that as differently because, um, so if I remember correctly, that was a paired board with three to a flush. Um, and, and, you know, if you're, if you're yes. kind of very familiar with, uh, you know, minimum defense sort of thresholds on, on that texture, given the context of the situation, his, his fold was tight. Um, but at the same time, it, it wasn't like a glaringly obvious, like good hand. If you just look at the situation, like kind of in a vacuum, like, oh, I'm facing a second barrel and I have mm -hmm. an under pair on a three to a flush board with no, with no flush draw. So like, if you kind of ignore like the, the precision of the sizing, the precision of the flop situation he's in, it's just kind of a fine fold. Like it's, it's not good. I, I, I wouldn't fold it myself. Um, but I think that would be a much bigger fold. Sorry, I think tens or nines or something in, in the hand we're discussing would have been a much bigger fold in Daniel's mind um, than the pocket eights were previously in the session. Yeah, that I think that that could be exactly how it is. Yeah, um, it makes makes some sense because just the flush is kind of scary, and he disregarded a little bit of sizing. And yeah, the sizing was unusual. Like he probably doesn't. It, it, just not that many people use that sizing in general. It, it's uh, that's the type of play that I was that I was looking out for on Doug's side to say, you know, is he manipulating his sizing deliberately to try and create a response uh, that's beneficial to him? And I thought that was a hand where he did that. Mm -hmm. That was a, was a cool hand for sure. Then going into the online portion of the match, did you um, did you think that that played out differently from life, and in in what manner? I mean, it's it's funny. It's it's hard to tell, right? It's it, you don't realize when you're watching a live stream like how much information you you get from just seeing 200 straight hands cards up. Mm -hmm. I mean that that's a that's a ton of information. Like there's there's probably more information if if strategies didn't change for the next 10,000 hands, those first 200 hands might be equally valuable information to the next 9800 if they were played all online because we saw all 200 of them all cards up every node, mm -hmm. right? You yeah. only get cards in very unique spots when you're playing online. And most of the time it's because it was a standard hand, right? Most of the time it's because they put it in preflop with queens versus tens. Like, what does that tell us? I mean, not a lot. It tells us that Daniel four bet tens that one time, but does he always four bet tens? Will he do it again next time? We have no idea. And, and like, it wasn't even that bad in the first place. So like, uh, there's just stuff that you take for granted. So I, I guess, I mean, I watched a lot of it. I didn't watch every single hand. Um, I felt for sure that Daniel played better. Um, but it's hard for me to say exactly why that was, because it's, it's possible that the cards down hands were the hands where he kind of played the same as we had seen in the previous match. Um, but I just, based on a few of the showdowns that I saw where he kind of like put up a fight and made some questionable calls or made some, or made some bigger bluffs or whatever. Uh, they, they looked reasonable to me. I, I didn't think there were any, like, I didn't think the cards flipped over at some point in any of the hands I saw. And maybe you remember one in particular. Um, but I don't think the cards flipped over at, at any point, um, other than perhaps the nine, seven suited hand, which got some attention. Um, and, and I said, what is Daniel doing? Like that, I don't remember that really happening. That is, that's very interesting. I, I, that even leads me to believe that Daniel did something in the live session to throw Doug off. Some, just, 
just trying to create like also this whole speech play with like old man speeding. I think that's <laughs> like always throwing that in there. That was fun. To, I, I enjoyed that a lot. Enjoy, yeah, for, yeah, and Doug always like yeah that that's that's how you're gonna meme it right yeah. like trying to throw him <laughs> off um, and. Uh, you know, trying to portray that image of playing like an old man and not really knowing what he's doing in the online match. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just don't think Doc is the kind of guy who will bait for that. I, mean, I think he's... I, he's yeah. <laughs> from from the few times I spoke with Doug, I, I feel pretty confident that he's he's giving Daniel credit for exactly what he's capable of, right? Like, he's mm -hmm. he's he's questioning all of the, all the things that he sees, especially when it's, you know, televised cards up when... You know, Daniel has kind of control over exactly what he advertises and exactly what he doesn't advertise. Um, I think he's he's fully skeptical of everything that's that's worthy of being skeptical about. Um, and like, well, yeah, that that's that's all I got on that. I think. Yeah. Well, it's like that first impression that the halo effect or something that that you you just try to have like a first impression of someone's game and then yeah. you kind of it has a good imprint on how you perceive someone. Yeah, and people have like different, you know, there's like valid different approaches to something like folding too much versus folding the correct amount, right? There's there's a totally valid uh, school of thought where you sacrifice, you know, a, a marginal edge in a situation where you're not sure if calling or is the right play um, in order to set up a future situation where you feel you're going to gain EV by, by the response to that fold that you made. Mm -hmm. um, it's totally valid. It's it's harder to quantify. So I think that not many online players are like on board with this methodology because it's it's hard to say like oh I earned this much EV by future EV by making that exploitative fold that I made earlier. Um, it's much more uh, reliable to say oh I I I took the edge I was supposed to take in this hand and then I took another edge that I was supposed to take in in the next hand right and and those are individually quantifiable. Um, but I think a lot of live players Daniel included are are more in the school where it's like you can make a play to set up something in the future and and you don't have to be making like uh, the correct play on, on hand number one uh, in order to be winning in the long term. Yeah, it's, I think also the, there's just some subtle details that I picked up on in the live session. I think that, you know, Daniel just always saying, he's speaking out loud, right? And I think that was just so comical at times saying, yeah, I have nothing, so I'm just gonna fold, right? Or uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Just just gonna fold. Just gonna muck, 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 right? Yeah. <laughs> I think that was hilarious uh, uh, to watch. Yeah. Um, yeah, among like some other shenanigans, like them being like so friendly with each other. I think it made for a good show for sure. Um, the whole I enjoyed, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you also make a lot of training videos on, uh, I just watched a little bit of, uh, I think the heads up series where you started the PR series, um, in the recent months. Um, what, um, made you start making training videos and, uh, how, how do you get into that? You know, that was one of those things where like my, uh, the network that I developed kind of brought the ideas to me more more than I had my own ideas for for things like this. Uh, I I've actually been making I, I guess it wasn't like regular training content, but I I made some training content uh, for a site called HeadsUpSit or HUSNG.com a long mm -hmm. time ago, and and that was basically just you know I had a network of of friends or or you know 
of players who I was playing against uh, quite frequently who were part of this like sort of community, you know, like separate from the two plus two forums on like the HUSNG site. Um, and that was when I was first kind of getting into heads up seriously. So, you know, just by talking with them, I was kind of placed in a position to take strategic knowledge that I already had and, and turn it into a product. Um, and those were fairly popular at the time. And, and at some point again, uh, when run at once, I think was maybe in their first year or, or thereabouts, um, I had a friend who played heads up cash who kind of came to me and said, Hey, this, this site is great, but they just don't have a lot of heads up cash content. Like, you know, and, and you play heads of cash and I've seen your content before. Like, why don't you, why don't you kind of get involved in this? Um, so I can't even fully take credit for getting, for getting into the training site world. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I really, really enjoy it. I think it plays to my strengths. Um, I think that, you know, it perhaps even better than my, my actual poker playing is just like my ability to communicate poker strategy and, and kind of, uh, put what I'm thinking into words. So that uh, comes across in my videos and that it, it just makes the whole job like very natural and enjoyable to me. So I get to, you know, be fairly ambitious or, or not kind of whatever, um, whatever I feel is appropriate for the type of video that we're doing. And, and it never feels like hard work. It just feels like I'm, I'm working on a project that I want to do. Uh, and I get to, you know, help a lot of people at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to ask like one or two critical questions regarding that because a lot of people, they say like, yeah, why are you sharing um, in-depth knowledge about poker? Like, why, why are you doing that? A lot of people think, well, you know, the more you share, the less EV you have uh, in, the, in the future, that there's less EV for people who win at poker. What would you say, what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I can't, you know, I can't say for sure that I can like go head to head with that argument and disprove it, right? That's not necessarily what I would would feel like I need to do either. But mm -hmm. I I agree with parts of that sentiment in that you know the more we share um, high level strategy content, uh, the more easy it is or the easier it is for other players to get to that same high level. Uh, now I would say, sort of in defense of training sites, I mean, number one. Uh, none of us would be good without the help of other people. And, you know, progressing the strategy of the game is, I think, inherent to progressing the the, the scale and scope and, and kind of success of the community as a whole. So I think, if the, I think if there's going to be a community as a whole, or if there's going to be like, you know, poker sort of in the spotlight, generally speaking, there needs to be people who are talking about how to improve and how to get better um, or else like, you know, you, you can't really onboard new aspiring interested players. And as the game changes, the strategy changes. So you also can't just have like books from the 1980s that were, you know, extremely valuable before trading sites existed and extremely valuable before, you know, solvers existed. Um, but you, you can't just like, you know, have those like uh, quote unquote Bibles sit there and just never get updated, right? Like you need to update the information to keep people engaged, to reach out to new audiences, to, to kind of continue to let that community build and improve together. So yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's, it's just kind of the opposite of the selfish point of view. Like the selfish point of view is like my hourly is going down, which means bad. <laughs> uh, and like everything that contributes to the hourly, to my hourly going down needs to stop. And, and I just disagree with that. Um, if, if my hourly in a particular game is diminishing over time, that's the natural course of that game. 
we need to like step back and look at poker like on a bigger picture and think like what are generally positive things for poker um and if and if poker eventually fades away and, and if heads up no limit for example is not viable like so be it um I'm, I'm kind of at peace with with that sort of thing and uh i'm just you know i just want to be in like i think a generally positive industry and in, in the training industry uh doing something that i enjoy that's that's the main thing for me yeah i think that's a very cool statement to hear from you and, and for people who have that question because i hear that question quite a bit on like when i talk to different kinds of people on poker like why the whole um training and coaching is, is is really a thing for some people i think that's a quite a good answer what is your also maybe also it has to do as well that you don't um charge too little right that you're not like selling yourself short or something like if that then there will be a little bit of disbalance so what's your like overall approach to also poker coaching in general and um because there's a lot of people who offer coaching like i also offer coaching to plo players specifically um not to anything else uh, these days because i think i'm not really like, qualified for other game formats and plo um yeah what's your approach to to coaching and, and coaches in general that are out there offering that to other players? You know that, I mean, this has changed over time for me and it's it's actually continuing to change. I, I was, um, I've been kind of like workshopping an adjustment to my my coaching rate and my coaching offering a little bit, uh, probably at, at the latest by the new year. But, you know, I think that there's different, I think that there's a need for different types of coaching at different price points for, for different markets, right? So. Uh, if we're talking training sites, you know, there's, there's the training sites that have very low, uh, monthly cost or even free content that appeals to sort of like the wider base of amateur players, aspiring professional players, part-time professional players, like kind of the people who aren't, you know, day in, day out on a computer and, and can't reasonably spend the, the money or invest, uh, to get like top, top level coaching. And I think that's necessary because again, just to to keep um, bringing people into poker and to, and to continue to, to let the ecosystem uh, thrive, you need to continuously get new people who either like barely have played seriously or, or haven't really played uh, into the lower levels of the game. You just need to like kind of bring them in with a very baseline level of, of training or coaching or, or what have you. Um, now, then of course, like kind of at the top, there's some of the people who I've worked with and I, I haven't, exclusively worked with people who are at the top, but um, a, a more specialized style of coaching where, you know, I'm, I'm a winning mid stakes to high stakes, no limit cash player, uh, maybe in a certain environment that's not quite as competitive as the environment that I want to be in. Uh, and I just need kind of an outside point of view to, to look at my game and say, what, what could I be doing differently? What am I missing? What's kind of like the next step? And that's more like traditional coaching, I suppose. Um, and that, that's what I enjoy a lot. Um, but that said, you know, the, the scope of that is very limited. Um, you know, if I was to charge, I, I mean, I, I've been charging $600 an hour, which is already very restrictive in, in who can afford mm -hmm. that and who's interested in that. But if I was to charge $1,500 an hour or $5,000 an hour, there's still a market there. There's still people who are interested in that. Um, but you might, you might be helping one person move by a few inches in their strategy, you know, once, <laughs> once or twice a year at a rate like that. And, and then at the very opposite end, you know, you could run group seminars and you could, and you could do live, uh, 
live seminars and you could produce videos and stuff at a low, low price of like $9 or, or, or whatever. Um, and you could help hundreds or thousands of people move by yards at a time or by miles at a time. Right. So, um, I, I enjoy both. <laughs> um, I think both are really good sort of where I'm, where my head is at for like my personal coaching going forward is, is I want to try to offer distinct products that, that kind of fall into both of those categories or distinct offerings. I say products, like as if I'm, you know, launching a line of lotion or something, I'm not, but, um, d distinct items that say, okay, if you're, if you're very competitive and if you're at the top and you want to move a few inches towards, towards the elite, I, I have something for you. Um, and if you're way at the bottom or trying to get involved at the middle from, from, from small stakes or trying to move from live to online, which is a very common one these days. Um, there's a, there's a more affordable, more all encompassing offering for you. I think that's mm -hmm. really important. Mm -hmm. For me, studying no limit is, is, is interesting and in how it compares to PLO. Um, because for me, PLO, for example, with visions, you have most of the streets covered. Um, I mean, you can even just like if you take a turn node, you can just run River Sims and then you pretty much have 100 BB PLO 6 max. You can almost look at any situation. Um, obviously, you can, when you, whenever you have the preflop ranges for a no limit totem situation, you can do the same with Pyre. But I think that when it comes to libraries, the products out there are not um, as good the way I've seen it. Maybe I've just not spent enough time looking for them. But uh, I think that there's not enough large data libraries in No Limit that um, do something similar than what Visions does. I could be wrong here, though. Yeah, I I haven't seen. I mean, that's you know that's a publicly available product that's that's pretty well marketed. I think that there are you know sort of like private. I mean, like you know, we're, if, if we're talking about the existence of dream machines or like the kind of, you know, the, the types of study tools that exist, you know, sort of in the, in the private, mm -hmm. um, poker world, they're like, they're, they're out there and they exist and, and they're, you know, probably being shared among study groups or, or sold, you know, on a case by case basis or something. But of course there's development of products like this, but I, I agree with you. Like, I mean, I guess DTO comes to mind. That's, that's a yes. you know, yes. sort of like a trainer. It's, it's not, exactly like vision, but it, there's a lot of similarities mm -hmm. there. Um, and, and simple, um, what's it called? Simple GTO trainer or simple, the, yeah. the simple family of products had like their, their kind of trainer tool, um, that I've seen being used on, on some, tr on some videos recently. Uh, I know, I know there's a couple run at once coaches who use that and, um, yeah, just the idea being like, like gamifying your study, right. Or like taking taking solver output and, and bringing it into sort of like a user-friendly um, format. I think I think No Limit's getting better at that faster. Perhaps PLO was just like at a place where, you know, solver material and user interface were being like developed simultaneously. Um, I think No Limit had, had early solvers where like the user interface was just garbage. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so now, so they had the whole task. It's like, okay, we already have the the solutions. How do we overhaul it and make it look pretty and interactive and that kind of thing? Uh, whereas yeah. Vision was a little bit ahead of the game in terms of like interface. I'm doing it at the same time for for sure. Yeah. Uh, where do you um, 
you're also an ambassador for Ronnie Wands Poker. Where do you see the role or your role as an ambassador and what are your criteria to promote a brand? So, I mean, Run It Once is, well, I, I might be wrong. I, I can't really remember. But as far as as far as I remember, they're the only brand that I really promote. Um, you know, that was sort of like, uh, I guess, a gradual, uh, to, me, to me, almost like a foregone conclusion after how long that I've worked with Run It Once and sort of like my gradual alignment with with what I like about, about their company. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten to know Phil a little bit better in the last couple of years and uh, I think just kind of like consistently since I started working with first like the Run It Once training team and, and then eventually kind of the whole poker slash training team, I've found uh, just like very considerate, you know, big picture minded, uh, generally positive community within the company um, and, and everything that they're doing kind of has that front of mind. So yeah, just like sort of a natural no brainer type thing. I mean, there was, there was just sort of a, an easy uh, way for, for me to make the transition from like, you know, uh, very supportive run at once elite coach to, to run at once poker ambassador, uh, which is basically just like, uh, take, because their poker site is anonymous. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, I actually like playing with my identity showing in, in an anonymous player pool. I think that's, that's actually like a really fun, uh, dynamic, which could potentially be more profitable than playing anonymously within that pool, de depending on exactly you know who you are and and how that works but i think we see that a lot with like um with ambassadors who play you know with like their face as their avatar in in what whether or not it's an anonymous game like very often you see you know a sea of screen names on on you know choose your network of choice and then the real name with like the with like the avatar of whoever is the ambassador i think that's always like a fun environment for the other players um and i saw that you know, when, when Phil or when Farah jumps on, on run it once and plays, like people just engage with that. They enjoy it more. Uh, when we did like the run it once pros, uh, six max game on, on, uh, run it once poker and made like a video series out of that. Like everyone's just having a, a fun time because there's like a person of interest in the game. So, uh, to me, that's just like, like something I'm happy to, to bring, uh, when I'm in the run it once poker games, I will say, you know, like I, I would. I would love to have the games that I want to play run more frequently um, on Run It Once Poker, but they've they've devoted a lot of resources to to getting the sit and go product out, which I think they're really happy about, um, and that's something that I tested a little bit when they when they launched and and thought it was, I mean, just just like the cash game, I think their software is pretty fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's going to be a really fun game. Again, the, you know, there were only a few of us kind of trialing it, but but when there's when they're doing sort of a larger launch, I'll definitely be playing those just like just just for fun. It's fun to it's it's a good way to interact with the community that I like, you know, at the moment only really interact with on the training platform. And I think that's like um, I think that's a big difference in terms of engagement with with people who we want to like stay in the community, who we want to like continue to support run at once. Um, to know that you know you don't have to you don't have to make a comment on a video and ask a strategic question to interact with with the pros on the site. I, I think that in general the liquidity of the site is going to be the, the, the make it or break it point, and that's 
for me, the, the liquidity game for poker sites is a game that's not played the same way by all competitors. Um, there is obviously some um, competitors who step over the line and they, they basically use liquidity in countries where it's like gray area slash almost illegal to have players playing. Um, there's obviously also the biggest poker sites these days, they use um, non-traditional affiliate system to um, drive traffic to their sites as well, which for example, running once poker doesn't. Um, and that I think is gonna be a huge disadvantage for running, running once poker. Did you have any thoughts on how poker sites drive liquidity to their sites. And I mean, this is, this is kind of the side of the business that I just don't really have any involvement in. It's mm -hmm. it's something that I'm aware of, and I I tend to agree with you that it's, um, you know, it's unfortunate that when you try to when you when you have kind of like front of mind, you know, like running running properly and running uh, by the books then you inherently sort of like fall behind for for however long it takes to sort of like overcome that initial barrier. Um, I do think, you know, there's there's definitely like a critical mass thing. And I, I'm sure Phil's talked about this before when he's when he's spoken about, you know, the the progress that Run at Once is making. Um, their poker site has has come a really long way, but their their traffic hasn't necessarily like, you know, grown month over month in a way that you would want to see it to to become competitive with a with a party poker or a gg poker or mm -hmm. poker stars and that's not necessarily a problem at, at least in the short term um but it but again i don't know their i don't know their financials i don't know you know yeah. how this kind of how this kind of stuff affects the timeline for for the site um but from my point of view there's there's plenty of sites that have existed for a long time that have been small throughout their entire lifespan. Um, and that doesn't mean that they're like failed networks, right? Um, obviously it would be great to be the network that does everything the right way and, and rises to the top. Um, but I also don't necessarily think that it has to work that way or, or will work that way. Um, but I think it's gonna continue to grow. I think it's going to be, you know, a, a far more um, liquid platform when the when the game offerings become more liquid so i think it's like a bit you know it's also a bit early to say like oh if they were only just like <laughs> engaging in sketchy practices with their uh with their affiliate system and and if they only took bitcoin deposits then they'd be huge by now like i mean yeah i would love i would love if they took bitcoin deposits and i know they would as well um but in order to do that properly it it takes time and and i'm not too familiar with the exact procedure um and yeah, I mean, at the at the moment, there's just not there's not tournaments, right? That's a big barrier as well. And that is that is probably pretty huge. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, when I, I think that you know, especially with PLO, for example, if you look at the traffic for for a while, they've been doing pretty fine back in April, but then also there's been a, a decline on most, even the bigger poker sites in terms of their PLO traffic. I mean, if you take Stars, for instance, Zoom five hundred runs, but it doesn't really run like that consistently i think like yeah the weekends are fine but then some days it just there's nobody in the zoom 500 pool even uh which is yeah i mean it's, it's pretty sad if you think about it for like online poker uh cash game traffic you have to uh sort of and we got into that a bit earlier to look also at other options in your near future if that's like the trend that we're going towards or 
uh, always combine all the sites that if there's like one table running, you play like, like on a lot of different sites and that you can get enough action, basically. I think that's not the easiest thing to do uh, in PLO as uh, cache anymore. You have to combine a lot uh, of sites these days, I, I believe. Yeah, I mean, that that was what Heads Up No Limit was like for, you know, when I played full-time like 2013, 2014, 2015, you, you had to be on every site. Like you mm -hmm. had to play, you, you couldn't just open up Poker Stars and, and wait for games because there were hundreds of people opening up Poker Stars and waiting for games. Um, it, it wasn't a practical way to be a Heads Up player. You either had to, either had to battle like the best players in the world nonstop if you wanted to play on one site or you had to play on 12 sites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, the, basically the, the king of the hill system in Heads Up where you have to just fight for your spot. I think that uh, that was quite a, quite a thing for a while. And I heard some like Heads Up sit and go practices where people would just, you know, take the minus one, two percent and just see whoever can um, ride that wave longer for their other yeah. wrecks to break and then they would have the opportunity to battle the recreational players um may or may not have come from op poker in the chat <laughs> i don't know if you're still here but he's asking also some questions to answer his question maybe is there anyone playing winning at the high stakes that's obscene that plays sizing of frequencies pre or flop is outside of solvo strategy do you think still that's the thing the field player um, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about the, sorry, is that too loud? Um, yeah, yeah, that's, I hope yeah. it's, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that if you're talking about the winning players in the high stakes pool, like on the major networks, they're all using, like they're, they're all going to look like the sizings and, and frequencies you're expecting from, from the solver. Mm -hmm. Um, there's definitely like a, a group of players who's probably not that bad or maybe close to winning who are, are just not playing as often and they don't show up, you know, every day, but they're just not the people that I think were worth thinking of. Mm -hmm. Okay. There, there you go. I'm not sure. Maybe you listen to this afterwards, James. Um, yeah. And what about your life outside of poker? Um, what if poker on, or online poker wasn't around like what would would you be doing today um well there was you know well now it's pretty pretty bad with the background noise let's see if we can get that sorted out yeah hopefully it's on and off a little bit but it's it seems a little closer to me um so the uh the thing that i was spending a lot of my time on you know especially in the summers uh before I guess like before lockdown um, was ultimate frisbee coaching. That was something that like I mean it's we're not talking about a career. <laughs> okay, uh, we're not talking about like a career that I was you know pursuing, but I think that like sports coaching is something that has this like really interesting overlap with uh, the coaching that I've done in poker, and again just kind of like. Um, I find it strategically interesting. I, I find it sort of like mentally engaging. So that was something that I was, I was committing a lot of my time to, um, more recently, that's, that's not really an option. There's not really team sports where I am right now, but it's, it's something that I hope to return to, even if, even if poker's not, you know, struggling. Um, but that, that's something that I spent a lot of my time on, like happily, you know, without expecting it to be a job. And, and I think that there's transferable skills there. There's like the potential for you know, 
a, a job, so to speak, uh, in, in years after. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, in general, being a poker player, especially like reaching the limits that you have, I don't really understand. I'm not sure even if that, that's a concern of people who reached your limit. Um, but I think people rather who haven't reached that limit, that they make some money playing poker for a few years. They sometimes think that, yeah, they're not going to have a spot right. uh, after poker or, you know, what what they worry about that their skill sets that they have acquired in online poker is not, um, it's not easily transferable to other venues. But um, yeah, and I, I think a lot of people give, uh, try to, um, yeah, go on with that narrative, but I don't really think that's that's true. I think especially, yeah, yeah when you work on those skill sets and then when you try to also in your free time um, think about a lot of things than just the game, uh, you're going to have options in, in, in the future, even though your resume might not look too great. Maybe not in like a corporate job, but like how, what's your take on like... Yeah, I, I think that, you know... I mean, this is something that certain people in the in the poker community, I think, are really excellent at, and and this is actually probably something that that should have its own like coaching or consulting market is just like sort of how to um, how to take advantage of the of the skills you've developed uh, by being self employed, by being a by being a competitive poker player, and and moving those into different uh, career paths. I think that you know a, a confident. Um, a confident previously winning poker player could show up to a corporate interview and, and convince that company that you, that you have something to offer to them. Even if you like never finished school, even if you haven't been school in school in 10 or 15 years. Um, but, I, but I, you know, I recognize that not every company, uh, would look at you and say, you know, oh, this is someone that we're interested in hiring. I mean, to, to play the other side, I would say, is that a company that you want to work for? You know, when I when I think about like valuing myself as an employee in a, in a potential uh, work environment, looking into the future, like I'm I'm not interested in the type of management team that isn't open minded to someone who was successful as a self employed person working on the internet for ten for ten years, right? I mean that's that's mm -hmm. a huge achievement. Even even if you weren't raking in the money, even if you never made it to high stakes, if you if you sat at home for five years and paid your own bills and, and, you know, were able to be your own boss and like kept things put together and then eventually decided to, to move into another industry. Like you crushed it for five years and like a management team should be able to see that. But of course it, it takes, you know, some amount of open-mindedness on their side. And it also takes like preparedness and confidence on your side. Um, so I think that there's, you know, just a little bit of, of, of resume, you know, uh, not resume building, but just, just sort of organizing um, your thoughts on, you know, first of all, what am I interested in? Like, what what's the career I'm trying to move towards? And then within that career, what would I be good at because of my time as a poker player? I think of like decision making as just like a general skill that poker players are excellent at, that people outside of poker are terrible at. <laughs> even Even people in in very high up positions who are essentially professional decision makers are very bad at making decisions. Um, and I think that poker players uh, as a, as an opportunity, for example, to, to consult, um, can, can organize their, 
their skill set and decision making into something that they can offer to a company. Um, mm -hmm. And I and I even know some poker players who who have sort of like leaned into that strength of theirs um, and and have taken on consulting uh, to some extent, but. You know, if, if you're going to go to a company, for example, you, you need as also experience just in what they're doing um, to be a consultant to their decision making. But not everyone, need, it's not what everyone is interested in. You could be a consultant to an individual person, right? Like you can you can speak to to a CEO of a company that is struggling with with his or her decision making. And maybe that person just needs a little bit of like uh, life coaching, for example, which is something poker players would be really good at. Um, that's just the, that's just something I'm familiar with, but like, I, yeah. I'm very confident that that exists in, in almost every industry. I, I think that's an interesting point of the whole decision-making I think is also, um, I think it depends on which environment decision-making is in, because I think if I look at all my decisions, there's just some decision-making that is really easy for me, especially if the parameters are like clear or, I mean, or making sense of the information that is out there in poker. But what if you don't have the information? Um, I mean, not any of the information. What if you cannot make a statistical inference to what, what's going on? Um, I think decision-making uh, is way, way larger, but I agree that there's a skill set from poker players to start with, it's great. But I think decision-making as a whole is even another game that I, I am actually quite interested in. It's something that if, too. I can, if I can add on the skill stack to my poker game, even if I'm never going to make it to like the 25, 50, 50, 100 online at these very high stakes, then um, I'm still would say that my skill stack is pretty great from poker. Um, and then, yeah, I also have a teaching skill stack of, of how to try to teach people something about decision making. And then the question is, what do I have to do in order to make that a indispensable skill stack together and i think that that's a that's a fun question to think about for me um at times when it comes to the decision making uh something related things yeah just just something i thought of on that topic like I, I was talking with my partner recently uh she's she's in a master's program and she's finding that like a lot of her class you know like a master's student is is not that different from like someone in the position that we're talking about because a lot of times they don't have job experience yet. They just have like this, this buildup of knowledge that they're trying to, to funnel towards a career path in some way. Um, they have a more traditional set of skills, like, you know, written on paper that, that kind of fits the framework of what people expect to see when they're hiring. Um, but I've heard that a lot of them uh, lately are, are starting to market themselves on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, just as like experts or consultants in the fields that they've studied, which which is an interesting way to kind of like get start out job experience and to just like force create a resume from nothing is to literally just start like offering your services either for free or for very, very cheap to anyone and everyone in your network. And mm -hmm. whatever it is that you feel like you're good at, you can you can have a conversation with them. Eventually that relationship with your network can turn into you know tangible work experience. Um, but I think for a lot of self-employed people, they need to, to recognize that that work experience doesn't, you know, there's there's always the gap that people complain about out of out of university, right? Where it's like, uh, oh, I need a university degree to to get this job, but I 
or sorry, a master's degree or something. And then I need job experience to get a master's degree. And, and it's just like this uh, paradox of like, how do I, how do I get my foot in the door if they want my foot already in the door before I get my foot in the door? Like, okay, I, you know, I get it, but there's, there's other ways to, to start out that work experience. I think a lot of time it's just like, you know, just helping people for, for free or maybe for, for very cheap, uh, wherever you can afford to. I think that's a very good point that I always tell people who, you know, struggle with finances in, in general, like next to just watching your expenses and trying to not spend too much money and shit that you don't need. I think that the one skill that people um, would benefit from is to yeah, offer your help for free and actually deliver value. And then if that's actually valuable, people will follow up or the network will follow up on that. Um, and I think that's a very, like the foot in the door principle is very strongly linked to you being able to build something over time. Um, and I mean, you don't have to sell yourself short, like you can you do that for a certain short amount of time. And then afterwards, if it's valuable, people will follow up on that and it can escalate, yeah. I think, rather quickly if you're if you're specifically good at something. Yeah. Um, you, you also passed me the one of the last points that I'm interested in is what your um, you know, approach to relationships has, or how has that looked like, um, especially as a online poker player, um, how easy or not easy was it for you to, um, yeah, to be out there? Or how long have you been dating or are you married already or? Uh, no, we're not married. I mean, I guess the, in Canada, it's a common law relationship because we've lived together long enough that the province basically thinks that we're married. Okay. Um, but yeah, I've been, I've been in my relationship with my partner for over six years and, mm -hmm. uh, it's for me, like, you know, life balance has always been a really, really key, uh, priority while playing online poker, which I think not everyone either has the luxury or, or has the capacity to, to carve out. Um, I'm, I'm sort of, a. I mean, it's funny. I'm, I don't think that I'm actually that social of a person, but. I do find that if I don't, you know, balance social interaction with my work, then my like headspace is is really cloudy and like it, it's it's just sort of like a necessary uh, release for me. So even when I was playing, you know, 12, 14, 16 hour sessions uh, when I first moved to Toronto because I needed the money and because I was living with other grinders, so we just you know we just played all day. Uh, I still like, you know, signed up for sports leagues and got out as often as I could and, and tried to connect with people who weren't poker players, which I think is just like a really, uh, valuable thing for, um, I mean, you, you talk about, you know, life after poker, um, for me, it's more like life with poker, you know, sure. uh, which I think can still exist. And I, I think can, can exist even in a very competitive environment, um, you know, for, for just a few hours a day, uh, or, or for a few days a week. I mean, it's exactly what people do with, with regular nine to five jobs. Like you, you often commute two hours in both direction. You, you work all day. You don't see your friends all day. Like it's, uh, it's very normal to be closed off to the world for 12 hours a day, but you still kind of need to make that push to, to interact with people and, um, and to balance something you're interested in besides your work with your work. Uh, of course, I'm lucky enough to be interested in my work as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the interesting things that I, that I find is what if you like, 
uh, for your relationship, you say you've been in there for like six years. Um, what if you subtract that your financial success? And by that, I mean, um, was there a period where you kind of struggled um, with, because I think I hear that a lot from like some people that are in poker. Well, if there's fluctuations and then obviously the mood can be affected by your finances, et cetera, that, um, yeah, that has a, has a toll on the relationship and how important is, would you say the other person right. understanding of that situation? Right. I think it's super important. I think, you know, a, a mistake that I was making early on and, and not even a large one because, you know, I, I can't really speak to like being in a true financial struggle while in a relationship because the kind of like the worst financial struggles I had in poker were while I was single and while I was moving to Toronto and, and kind of, I was flexible to just like dive fully into my work and not do anything else. Um, so, it, so with that possibility aside, um, I think it's really important to be like as transparent as possible with your partner and to, and to sort of like, you know, maybe they're not interested in being fully brought into your poker life, um, to the point where, you know, you're, you're talking hand histories with them. Um, but I, I think that it would be, it would be silly to think that they want to be completely shut out from the ups and downs of your, of your swings, um, from poker, because that's like an emotional uh, connection that has to, that has to be visible, um, at least to some extent, you know, everyone deals with these kind of things differently, but I think like closing off and just like pretending that your finances are okay when they're not would be a horrible mistake to make. Um, but yeah, like with my partner, you know, she had a well-paying job for, for most of the first few years that we were together. Uh, she's now back in school, so she's not working, but mm -hmm. it's just like, we've, we've kind of had a clear understanding of each other's finances and how we're going to use it. And any, anytime the position changes that we're in financially, we just like talk about exactly what we're changing and then we do that. Um, so I, I think that's like, yeah, I mean, communication is key. Everybody says that, right. But that's, it's, it's true. And it's so easy. I think as like a self-employed, um, you know, self-driven competitive professional gambler, to think like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this work. I can make this work. Like I'm by myself in this. And like, even when you have a partner, right? Like I'm by myself in this, I'm going to win this money. And like, when you're losing, you know, you can, you can kind of hole up emotionally and, and not really share that. But I mean, you've, it's also just risk management. Like you've got to, if you need to pivot your, the way you're uh, risking money, uh, first of all, like <laughs> be truthful to yourself and actually make that pivot. Um, but second of all, maybe tell your partner that, you know, if, if things need to change about your spending habits or, or, uh, your, your hours worked, um, if you feel you need to put an extra time because you're, you're losing recently, or if you feel you need to take time off because you're burnt out, like you just need to tell them that. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the, um, the only thing that I see is, is kind of tough in, in terms of finances is if you're in a. Uh, in a rather expensive country, it's like starting a family, especially if you want two, three children. Um, because you need so much money for playing poker in terms of security and risk management, especially the higher stakes you play, um, and if you lack some options, I think that's that's going to be the the yeah the most difficult thing to do. Is is that something you uh, do? You want to have a family, or do you want to have kids in the future? I mean, we we've talked about it. It's it's currently like a, it, it's it's sort of like lower on the priority scale compared to what we're currently working on professionally in mm -hmm. both of us individually. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I think, you know, when that, I mean, you know, consider the expense of having kids or the expense of, of buying a house or the expense of whatever it is that you want to do kind of in your personal life. Um, it, you make a great point is just that like, you need to kind of have a, a poker bankroll and a life bankroll, right? And, and making a decision like that requires a much larger life bankroll. Whereas maybe, you know, when you're, when you're 20 years old, you're just used to having a bankroll period end of, end of story. Right. <laughs> and, and that's, and if you bust that bankroll, no big deal, but like, you can't, you know, you, you can't simultaneously commit to a, to a family and not have a distinct bankroll for that family. Uh, whether it's coming from your partner's income or whether it's coming from savings or whether it's coming from your own expected income, like that, that needs to be clearly separated. Um, and I, and I think there's no shame in, for example, like getting backed or, or selling action, uh, even 10, 15 years into your career. I mean, I, I sell action today, uh, and, and even to, even to games that I don't necessarily need to buy, you know, by the book or whatever. But I, I mean, for two reasons, one, I, I think I, I mean, a selling action can be a two-way relationship. You're not just giving away EV. You can exchange EV for EV. Um, and, and two is it, is it just allows me to feel confident in, you know, playing as, I guess the, the financial decision here is like, how do I maximize my expectation within the level of risk that I'm allowing myself to take um, because of my current life situation? Uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the way that I'm approaching bankroll now compared to, you know, when it was just a bankroll and, it, and nothing else really mattered. Yeah. Is there uh, one of your future projects that we haven't got into uh, within today's podcast that I kind of overtook or, or jumped over or something that you wanted to address? Um, not really. I, I have some stuff that I'm working on that's not quite ready to be talked mm -hmm. about. Um, but you know, I'm thinking within the coaching realm, I would, I would basically just say like, you know, if, if people who are following me or, or following run at once are, are interested in products for me or offerings for me in the, in the coaching realm, there, there's more coming, um, that should be soon. And other than that, I mean, there's, there's, uh, yeah, there's some training material that I'm trying to put together kind of for the medium to long term that I think is going to be interesting and different from the training material that I've put out so far. Um, so, but, but again, it, it's just too early to really talk about details. So yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, just, just knowing that at least where my head's at right now, like, I don't, I don't think that, you know, trying to go back to live poker and traveling is, is a, is a realistic option for me in the next year. So I'm going to spend as much of that next year as possible on the stuff that I can do from home, which is, which is putting out really good training content and, and taking more students and doing more coaching work. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. And um, there's like one more question in the chat. How, how do a, does a losing micro low six player, um, or how should a losing micro low six player approach studying? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, it, we, we talked a little bit before about the need for different types of coaching and like kind of different price points, different levels. I think there's, I think you kind of need to find like the, the right, uh, home for, for your method of training that you need. Um, there's so many different starting points. Some people, some people go straight to solvers, which I think is great, but it's, it's hard. Like it only works for a certain type of person. Um, if I was playing micro stakes today, I would play a lot. Um, 
and and use that information that I gather from playing because I, I'm assuming this is online if it's micro stakes, um, because the data that you get from playing is is something that can very easily be analyzed by a coach. It can very easily just like tell you a story in in the stats. Um, if you're able to just have a friend look at it or, or talk to another micro stakes or low stakes player who's who's maybe having more success. Um, obviously, if you don't know any other micro or low stakes players, I would say meet some if as as quickly as you possibly can. Um, or or even I mean, it's always like it's always scary, I guess, to reach out to players who play higher than you. But like a lot of people are totally friendly and are happy to to talk to other players regardless of how high they play. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think just like having data that says like, hey, I'm losing and I don't really know why. Here's the data. Like, here's how I play. If you were to present that to someone who kind of knows what they're talking about, you can you can fix so many problems so quickly. Um, that's a big one. And then the other one is just, you know, like dive in, dive into the content, training sites, forums, like, you know, there's there's essential run at once. And there's also the stuff that um, that sort of onboards to essential run at once. There, um, there's a book that just came out. Uh, that Corey Mickasell wrote um, that I actually ha I had a small contribution to, but he but he did he wrote a great book and it kind of designed with the intention of saying like, hey, I'm someone who who wants to know poker, but I don't really get it in in kind of the modern sense. Just this like all encompassing uh, book that that's maybe like a similar to the ground up courses is sort of like a bridge from like I'm a I'm a losing player who doesn't really understand training content bringing them up to speed to say like, okay, I want to, I want to fully understand training content. I want to watch like a winning, you know, mid stakes player and understand what they're talking about. Um, there's, there's definitely a gap there that needs to be bridged. So, um, yeah, I guess that's a long way of saying, uh, <laughs> show, show, show your data to as many people as possible to try and get feedback on it and, uh, absorb as much, uh, entry level training material as you possibly can. Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, so my Twitter is at krabichow. I have a link to my coaching page on in my bio there, and I am also relatively active as far as like promoting whatever I'm working on. Um, also, just you know, on on Run at Once is a great place. I'm I'm in the forums from time to time, and I'm always very active with the comments on my videos. So if you DM me there, if you or if you comment on my videos there, if you're enjoying that stuff, that's a that's a great way to get you know strategic conversation in with me. All right. Thank you very much for joining me today, Kevin. And I hope, uh, yeah, you enjoyed it as well. And uh, yeah, this was fun. Thanks, Andreas.